Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. My name's Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to this MedHeads episode. We're very lucky to have with us Marie Eisma. Hello, Marie. Hello, hello. So, Marie, I thought today we'd talk about the impact that COVID isolation has had on our society. And, you know, mm. from, your, from your perspective as a mental health social worker, I'd be very interested to hear what your, what your experience has been. So some of the things that I've certainly seen, and so have my, a lot of my colleagues, my, my psychologist friends and family therapists and other fellow mental health social workers, uh, the impact on relationships. That's probably the first uh, mm. really big observation that I've noticed with the client, mm. uh, the client uh, presentations. So impact on relationships. Tell me more about that. What, what do you mean by that? So uh, before when we were approaching um, lockdown, there was many people who thought the prospect of having to remain under the same roof line as a partner who they'd been having some you know turbulence with in recent months or years actually became a major catalyst for people to uh leave their their homes like some people actually knew that the prospect of being locked in with their partner was going to be like you know too beastly to contemplate so some people actually made those as uh use that as an opportunity to write, you know, make a line in the sand and actually end their relationship. So that's the one thing. Uh, the other ones I've actually seen have actually where they decided to uh, separate once we got out of lockdown. Um, so we've had some tumultuous um, things going on in the home. Um, the, I know I was only talking to someone the other day and the amount of um, IVOs, the amount of stuff going through the through uh, courts in response to family violence, mm. absolutely, you know, skyrocketed. Yeah. And there's also the issue of domestic abuse and violence, isn't there? So you're stuck, yes. you're stuck with an abusive spouse under the same roof effectively 24-7. I mean, that, that's, that's a melting pot that's um, caused a lot of, a lot of um, grief and anger, hasn't it? Yeah, and I think that the other thing that's been a, an eye-opener for a lot of the clients that I've certainly been working with, both as um, people who have experienced, you know, in, in, increasing levels of agitation and irritability, is that the person that they've been in relationships with, all of a sudden they started to see a side to those people that they never saw before. So it's very much uncharted waters. But yeah. then the opposite was also occurring for some people who all of a sudden um, had such huge levels of irritability and agitation that it was it was a surprise to them. They started actually getting help because they weren't liking who they were seeing in the mirror either. Mm. Right. And are, I mean, going back to the idea of abuse, are we actually seeing more an, an increase in the incidence of domestic violence? Yeah, more... Um, I, I, my personal thing is I haven't actually seen a lot of physical violence. I've seen the psychological and I've seen the emotional. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen the, the, the uh, withdrawing, the retreating. Um, I've seen people literally go into absolute shutdown and partners have felt like they've been on the outer. So while I personally haven't seen actual physical violence, I've seen more um, where people might have started to increase drinking and then they've started the actual, you know, um, verbal assaults. Um, the put downs, 
um, all of a sudden things that they were able to probably, you know, channel their energy somewhere else has not been able to happen. And they've actually like now all of a sudden once they've been on their, on, they've either had some drinks that they probably wouldn't ordinarily have had, they've now gone off and actually started, you know, speaking their mind to their partners and, and that's where the, a lot of the conflict has actually started to arise. Mm, right. So putting two people in together into a, into a pressure cooker who don't necessarily get on all the time exposes a lot of the fracture lines, basically. Yes, definitely. And that's certainly been what I've seen. And, you know, even a colleague of mine wrote, you know, divorce. That's, that's the theme of everyone coming through her, her clinic yeah. at the moment is divorce. <laughs> yeah. And what about the children? Oh, look, it was interesting. I was only talking about this the other day. You know, uh, sometimes people were, you know, well-meaningly putting up lovely things on Facebook of, you know, families happily, um, you know, baking bread together and doing all these lovely, these lovely family things. But for a lot of people, that only made them feel even worse because that wasn't what was going on in the family. They don't show... A friend of mine was actually saying, you know, they don't show people sitting down there devouring the whole loaf of bread in an effective emotional soothing because they've been rattled <laughs> by their partner. Yeah, um, yeah. Weight gain. Oh, my gosh, that's been another massive thing. You mm -hmm. know, people have come back in and it's like, you know, this is the body that COVID built. Um, right. They've gained, you know. 10 kilos, people have come back to work and all of a sudden, you know, everyone's complained they've had to go and buy new clothes mm. um, because they're, they've outgrown their wardrobes. Yeah, yeah. So that's the context. The, the, this, this pressure cooker environment has basically exacerbated everyone's uh, fracture lines, irritability, and, and uh, one's, it, it's taken a toll on everyone's resilience. Mm. What are the warnings? What are the presenting signs of you know a frank mental illness? What kind of I've illnesses seen, do we see? I've seen more heightened anxiety. So mm -hmm. I've actually had clients who have never really. I mean, they may have they may have had anxious moments, but I've actually seen clients come down like with more symptoms of actual agoraphobia, where they're mm -hmm. they don't want to leave their house. They've gone back to a shopping centre and they can't cope with the overstimulation, mm -hmm. um, which has been really, you know, really quite um, pronounced, for certainly for a lot of the clients that I've been working with. Right, right. So agoraphobia, what, what does that mean? What does agoraphobia mean? It basically feeling uncomfortable in, you know, sort of environments, could be shopping centres, it could be, well, agoraphobia is the, the title, actually came from fear of the marketplace. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, people just being absolutely, you know, um, not coping in overstimulated environments, all of a sudden being in too much close proximity with people has been, mm. you know, very unsettling for people. Trying to get yeah. back on a, on, a, on a crowded bus. Mm. You know, I've seen many people like hit the exit and jump off the bus because they've just not been used to the, um, the physical proximity of so many right. people now. Right. So we're seeing an increase in the anxiety disorders and in particular, as you said, agoraphobia. And then also, presumably, we're seeing more generalized anxiety disorder, perhaps. Yeah. And I know while it was all going on, certainly increasing of um, OCD type symptoms. So where people right. are like very petrified of, you know, germs and wanting to wash mm. their hands. Yeah. Yeah. What about the depressive disorders? Are we seeing more people with depression in your experience? 
Yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, if it didn't happen as a consequence of, you know, collapsing businesses, um, I know for my more mature clients, they've been very concerned about their, the stock exchange, the, um, the superannuation uh, because of the, you know, the interest rates coming down, the term deposits that people used to have money in. Um, I've seen a lot of presentation for the more mature person who's very, um, who's actually quite, you know, quite depressed about everything, but equally also anxious. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly, yes, depression. Uh, and from my experience with a lot of males, it's been certainly increases in alcohol to manage mm -hmm. uh, the symptoms that they're dealing with. They'll, they'll just go to their, their friend's place to, you know, do some carpentry or they'll just go to someone's house to work on the car. But mm -hmm. usually what a lot of it is is actually an opportunity to be drinking. Yeah, yeah. So are we, what, what does depression look like? You know, how, how do you know that, that, that you're getting depressed? I mean, you know, because pe people don't understand, you know, what that diagnosis looks like and, and in fact, what it means to have that diagnosis. Yes. And this is a, a big thing that I've mm. seen so often is people think that depression meets someone literally under the doona and that yeah. the person's basically bed bound. And that's only one version of one of the symptoms that can come under the cluster of depression. I have seen yeah. people more often than not irritable. Yeah. Those people that are kind of agitated, um, they're not comfortable, they're, they're short fused, they're, they're, you know, it doesn't take much for them to get triggered and set off. Uh, and then the whole family goes into, you know, feeling uncomfortable and walking on eggshells and, you know, children are scampering to their rooms trying to, you know, not have to be sitting around the proximity of the person who's, you know, mm. just starts picking and picking and being yeah. niggly. And what about the biological uh, other things, symptoms? Yeah, so usually it's sleep disturbance. You know, people mm. will either start oversleeping, um, not not getting enough sleep, or their uh, or their sleep is incredibly broken. They're waking up. Mm. Um, one of the things I'll often ask for you know ask clients is, do they find it easy to fall asleep if they're looking mm. at and you know fluffing the pillows and moving around the doona every three seconds? That's not necessarily indicative of a good sleep. But mm. same is early morning waking where someone wakes up and, you know, it's one thing to, you know, just turn over from side to side and maybe fall back asleep, you know, a couple of minutes later. But if we're still sitting there 60 minutes, 90 minutes, two hours later, uh, yeah. not falling back asleep, that, that there's another telltale sign. Changes yeah. to appetite, yeah. um, overeating, not eating enough, weight gain, weight mm. loss, yeah. um, concentration, just not able to enjoy things. Yeah, um, being, that's, you know, that's a key symptom, the, the, the lack mm. of joy. I mean, that, that's a question that I ask patients you know, when I'm screening mm. for depression is, do they have joy in their life? How do you think yes. that a lack of joy, how, how do you elicit that symptom? What questions do you ask? You know, oh, yeah, so I'll often ask something, you know, are you able to enjoy things? Do you feel like mm -hmm. there's been, you know, are you able to look forward to things? And when we think about good mental health, one mm -hmm. of the problems that happened with COVID was that the, the novelness and the new experiences, which is cornerstone to good mental health, mm -hmm. people weren't able to do things. Yeah. Not only could they not go to their local gyms, they weren't able to, you know, the you know, the whole thing around dopamine, if someone was going to go, they were looking forward to a really nice meal or they were looking forward to going camping. You know, mm. some of these things are really important to get the, um, you know, the, 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 the chemicals of actually looking forward to something, much less mm. the joy that you actually get when you're there. Yeah. So, yeah, they're, they're sorts of questions. But the other thing that would come up is feelings of guilt or feelings mm, that, yes. you know, maybe I would be better off if I wasn't here, or, yes. you know, everything is just such an effort. 
So when I start seeing things like that, and then, of course, the presentation, you know, what people say, or if I start seeing there's a discrepancy between, yeah, no, I'm feeling really good while you see them, you know, um, you know, clenching or, you know, you know, stretching out their fingers, looking really agitated, you know, so we're looking for lots of little clues like that. And of course, the, you know, the, the, the ultimate endpoint of, of depression and in fact a lot of mental health disorders associated with low mood is the fact that people start thinking about ending it all. I mean, how, how do you approach yes. that subject? I will, I usually call it straight out. I'll, I'll jet, I mean, I've learned now the best thing to do is not pussyfoot around with the word suicide. Um, mm-hmm. But often I'll say something to the effect of, you know, I'll, I'll always preface it by saying, look, you know, I work with many clients and, you know, it's not uncommon that when people are feeling so damn miserable uh, that they will actually have thoughts that they would either be better off if they were not alive, e.g. they've actually been thinking about suicide, mm-hmm. um, or that, you know, maybe if it hasn't got to that, that if they're in bed and the doona, you know, strangled in the middle of the night, that it wouldn't be such a bad thing. So, we're, you know, I'm always deciphering between what's a passive death wish and what's mm-hmm. straight out suicidal ideation? Um, yeah. Because sometimes people are they. There's a difference between, and this is a really a, a gorgeous psychiatric nurse told me to you know about the distinction between this. Do you actually want to die, or do you just want the distress you're living with at the moment to stop? Yeah, that's a because there's actually thing. quite a there's a quite a difference in the energy between those two statements or those two yeah. the way those two questions can be asked. Do you want the stress to stop or do you want your life to stop? Yes. Well, again, you know, you have that ability to make it extremely concise. Yes. And that's exactly, yeah, that's, that's, uh, mm. and more often than not, people will actually say, no, look, I just, I, you know, and of course, then I'm always gauging for things like hopelessness and helplessness. If I can still sense that, you know, oh, look, I, I just know this is a moment and I do yeah. think it's going to get better. Then yeah. there's always that nice big, <laughs> big breath in. <laughs> Um, but when I hear someone saying, look, no, I actually don't hold too much hope that things are going to get any better, then I'm starting, then I'll, I'll gauge, go straight through to a full risk assessment. Right. And I think it's important to understand that asking the question about suicide mm-hmm. does not actually increase the risk of suicidal activity. Not and at all. If, and if we as clinicians don't ask the question, we are utterly negligent. Because a lot of people have this feeling that you're not allowed to broach the subject for fear of triggering mm. something. Well, that, mm. that's just on many levels an untenable uh, view to have of this issue, isn't it? Yes, that's yeah. exactly right. In fact, some people actually really value the chance to be able to have sort of an objective experience about Mm. about the enormity of of what does suicide mean to them. The relief that some people have got in just being able to say, look, there is a part of me that actually wants to die. Um, And the more that we can get comfortable as clinicians about having these conversations, the more we, you know, sometimes I've had clients just say, look, I've just been out of, I'm glad I've been able to park that aspect of myself somewhere. Mm. They've got no intention, they've got no plan. um, But they've just been very relieved to be able to let that part have a say. And yeah. I think there's something to be really said for that. So we'll, we'll move on to the addictive disorders. But before we, move, before we do that, are there any other big psychiatric or mental health disorders that we need to cross off our list of those that are more prevalent as a result of COVID? No, um, I certainly do know that the, yeah, the coexistence with substance abuse and mental health has certainly been something yeah. I've observed. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, But yes, certainly, yeah. So, okay, so moving on to the the addictive disorders. So um, in my practice, I've I've seen an increase in smoking. I've seen an increase Mm -hmm. in, in, in alcohol. Um, mm. With regards to alcohol, um, the, the, the men show a different pattern from women. It, you know, men tend to drink more alcohol because they're trying to cope with the loss of identity that they've experienced as a result of unemployment. Whereas mm. w- women tend to drink more alcohol because they're trying to cope with the stress of childcare and, and homemaking during COVID. Yes. Because the kids are at home as well. Mm. Um, so there, there are kind of different reasons for that. I mean, what's, what's been your experience with alcohol? Exactly what you said. I think there's been a lot of girls who were, you know, even putting stuff on Facebook around, you know, oh, is it wrong to be wanting to have a drink before midday? So I think a lot of the, <laughs> my experience, you know, when's the right time to have the first drink? Um, but no, certainly I think you're right. There's, um, you know, I know a lot of women have become very resentful um, and I don't want to use this in, you know, in stereotypical in a stereotypical form, but a lot of women have actually been really, really um, niggled at the fact that their partners, if they've still been able to stay in employment, have had the luxury or perceived luxury of being able to get in their cars and shuffle off to work while they've been at home trying to juggle yet another load of washing, um, another, you know, oh, my God, there's nothing in the pantry, kids want something to eat, um, and then trying to do the homeschooling. And I know a lot of women have been caught up in the comparisons that you've got these other women putting stuff up saying how the kids have got all their schoolwork done, whereas other people have been ducking and weaving around the phone call from the school that was saying, look, you know, you know, you haven't submitted anything online. Um, I know I've had a lot of clients upset because, you know, um, social workers and welfare workers from the school have been saying, look, your child hasn't been even attending online. Um, Do we have to make a notification to Child Protective Services? So there's been a lot of pressure in an already difficult situation that I think sometimes the systems have also not been in alignment and there's been mixed, mixed information causing a lot of distress, a lot of social comparison. Uh, that's made people feel very inadequate and certainly less than, and then made themselves feel like, oh my God, I'm I'm not even I'm failing as a parent, or I'm failing as yeah. you know as a mother. Yeah, and not even understanding the homework. There's been parents that are like, I don't even understand these my kids' homework. Yeah, this doesn't make yeah. sense. <laughs> so parents have had to become almost de facto de facto school aid school assistants, haven't they? Yeah. And yeah. it's 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 some parents aren't aren't uh, aren't able to do that, and that's no that's no uh, disrespect to them mm, yeah, for for, exactly. for whatever reason. Um, and the other thing is, one of the things that I've I've thought about is the social inequity of of, the, of this kind of enforced homeschooling. What if you're from a poor family that doesn't have access to the internet or a laptop at home? You know, what do you do then? Yeah, look, a lot of the schools were. Um were very aware of that and did sort of um, make sure that there was access to get dongles and computers and stuff like that. Uh, But the other thing that I would often see is people's, you know, because they were all in their homes, the whole sleep and wake cycle went out the window. You know, kids were going home at going to sleep at like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock midnight. People were all sleeping until midday. Um, You know, I think everyone just did what they needed to do to be able to survive the situation. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that, that did result in a lot of, you know, everything going back the front. People's eating went skewy. People weren't yeah. probably eating the most healthiest things that they would be eating. There wasn't yeah. the mood foods went out the window. <laughs> so I think it's important at this point to emphasize uh, the, the actual guidelines for alcohol consumption in Australia. So 
In, in Australia, the current recommendation is that you should be drinking no more than 10 standard units, sorry, 10 standard drinks of alcohol in a week and no yes. more than four standard drinks on any given day. Mm. Now, a standard drink in, uh, in Australia has 10 grams of alcohol in it. Yeah. So therefore, we shouldn't really be drinking more than 100 grams of alcohol per week. And that's, yes. that's actually quite a stringent target. Um, and I suppose that that target has been set because we know that the evidence for chronic disease goes up mm. when you drink alcohol. There's no safe amount of alcohol, but, it, but we're trying to minimize the risks for chronic disease. And that, that was set to minimize the risk of chronic disease at 100 grams of alcohol a week. Yes. And the, the, the 40 grams of alcohol on any given day was set to minimize the risk of un, uh, you know, un, uh, untoward events or accidents. Or, you know, that, that you're, because beyond that, you're, you're more at risk of, of accidental traumas, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. And just to put it into perspective, well, what is a standard drink? What is 10 grams of alcohol? So a standard drink, I, I always think of it as, as beers. I wonder why that mm-hmm. is. <laughs> so a light beer is about a standard drink, right? And you'll actually see it on the bottle. It might be one or 1.1. A medium strength beer is maybe 1.1, maybe 1.23. Whereas a, a full strength beer can actually be one and a half standard drinks. So if you put that into perspective, so if you put that into perspective, you're talking about seven standard beers a week. Yes. Which is one beer a day. And if you're talking about the, the, the maximum number of uh, drinks you can drink in a day, so that's four standard drinks. So you're talking about two and a half to three full beers a day, and that's, that's it. Exactly right. So when, I, when, 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 people have, when people realize just how stringent these uh, alcohol guidelines are, putting it into that context of you know, no more than three beers in any given day and no more than seven beers a week, it, it, it can sometimes be a very challenging guideline to follow and putting it into context on an international level so just to reiterate in australia standard drink is 10 grams right 10 grams of alcohol in the u.s a standard drink is 14 grams and in the u.s the guidelines say that you you should be drinking no for a bloke you should be drinking no more than 14 u.s drinks a week so 14 times 14 is about 190 something or other. So almost that's almost 200 grams. So that's almost double the recommendations of, of, uh, of alcohol consumption in Australia. So, mm-hmm. you know, then, then that starts bringing it into question, well, where, where's the truth of the matter? And I think, yeah. I, I, actually, I, I actually think that uh, the Australian guidance is really reflecting the risks of long-term harm uh, that, that we can experience because we know that alcohol is a carcinogen. We know that it causes heart failure. We know that it causes brain failure. We know that it causes mm-hmm. things like testicular atrophy. You know, the, the mm-hmm. effect of alcohol in the body is enormous. It's a poison. Yes. And in fact, were, were alcohol to have been suddenly invented today by one of those mind-altering chemical labs or they're constantly looking for psychedelics, if, if we suddenly came across alcohol now, there's absolutely no way that it would be legalized. It would be banned immediately for all its known ill effects. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. So that's all the more pertinent when we think about, you know, the effect of alcohol 
on the body and the effect of COVID on alcohol consumption, because we're, we're beginning to expose ourselves to the risk of all of these chronic ill health problems when we have this idea of well, what time can you start drinking in the day? Yeah, the that's right. Yeah, the quarantini actually heralds a lot of harm, unfortunately. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. I love that term, the quarantini. <laughs> so, I mean, we've talked about alcohol, we've talked about, and I've alluded to the fact that people are smoking more. I mean, I don't think we really need to explain just how bad smoking is for, for you. Everyone knows that smoking is bad for you. But yes. here's a question. Where can we get help? If, 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 we, we, if we can actually understand that actually some of the symptoms that we're experiencing, as you've alluded to, the irritability, the guilt, the lack of mm. looking forward to things, they're not necessarily the typical symptoms that we would experience or expect with low mood or depression. You know, people say, oh, I'm not depressed, but I've got mm. guilt, I've got anxiety, I'm irritable, and, and I have nothing to look forward to. Having recognized that problem and having recognized that there's a problem with our alcohol consumption or, for instance, our, our tobacco consumption, where can we get mm. help? How do we help? How do we seek help? Um. Look, there's so many, you know, there's so many resources on, on governments, you know, there's Beyond Blue, there's, um, you know, your local doctors are always a fantastic place to start. There's, yeah. um, you know, local community health centres, there's things yeah. like your mental health treatment um, plans. Mm -hmm. And, you know, understandably, you know, the government did extend the, the 10 sessions yeah. um, because of the impact of COVID. So they yeah. did uh, allow for an additional 10 to, you know, realise that in, for a lot of people, the therapy sort of, in some ways, the treatment therapy stopped when we got COVID. So if people were originally working on perhaps their uh, PTSD symptoms, when COVID hit, all of a sudden we may have had to change our clinical um, our clinical uh, focus to managing stress and managing anxiety that mm -hmm. the treatment for childhood uh, sexual trauma may have all had to be put on hold while we yeah. were dealing with these new set of symptoms and new set of um, stresses yeah. and yeah. things that were coming into the clinical room or half of us weren't even working in the clinical room. We were, you know, dealing with stuff over the internet and online. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I think that's a really good thing that the government decided to do. But there is a lot of help out there, um, which is so important about getting it. Yeah. So just to clarify a couple of things. So the GP mental health plan, the GP MHP, is, is, is a very good first point of contact. So seeing your GP and asking for a mental health plan, then what does that do? What does the GP MHP do? So that will provide, you know, the, the GPs will have an idea on who they think may be a good person to, you know, to refer the client to. They'll have a bit of an idea on, you know, my experience certainly with the GPs is they've got an idea on the different clinicians that might be out there and who they think might be a good fit. It also comes yeah. down to who's actually taking clients on. Um, I know a lot of clients have not been able to either uh, get into their, their their psychologist or their mental health worker or their, yeah. you know, clinical social yeah. worker uh, because their books are closed. Some people yeah. just aren't taking on new patients yeah. or new clients. So, um, so the GP yeah. will then have a, have a clear idea of the local services that are available. And I think it's really mm -hmm. important to emphasize that to access Medicare-funded uh, counseling sessions, you have to have a GP mental health plan. You cannot actually right. access Medicare benefits to see a psychologist or a mental health social worker without it. Mm -hmm. 
So that's, that's that. I mean, you know, you may argue about the, the the merit of that, but that's how Medicare is funded. You must go to see a GP first to get the GP mm. mental health plan written, and part of that plan then states referral to talking therapies, and then the GP will have yes. a, a list of resources. Yes. And before COVID, yep. there was a limit to the number of Medicare-funded sessions. Uh, before mm -hmm. COVID, there was only 10 sessions per year, but thankfully the government has now increased that number to 20. So now mm -hmm. patients can access, via the GP mental health plan, 20 mm -hmm. subsidized sessions. Now, it's important to note that that subsidy is only a subsidy. It doesn't necessarily cover the entire cost of the counseling session. So That's people right. need, People That's need exactly to be aware right. of that. There can mm -hmm. be uh, co-payments or there can be you know, gap fees. Um, yes, exactly. But that's, that's how we access the government-funded services is via that GP mental mm. health plan. So there is, however, a, a kind of an alternative funding stream uh, that the government has put in. And for those who have health care cards who, who cannot afford gap fees, there is a separate alternative funding stream, and it's run by the PHNs, isn't it, uh, Marie? Yes, yeah. that's correct. So, how, how so you, they, you know, realise that. So, yeah, the primary healthcare networks also have a range of clinicians that can also, you know, provide those services, especially for those that, um, you know, don't have access to extra out of, you know, and funds to cover the out-of-pocket yeah. expenses. Right. Yeah. So that's entirely bulk billed, effectively. That's what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it yes. is, out, and it does not necessarily rely on a GP mental health plan to actually, actually. Um, access those Medicare benefits, but it does still require a referral from a GP, doesn't it? Yes, that's yeah. correct. Well, Marie, unfortunately, yet again, we've run out of time far too quickly, but I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, and Thank we'll you, speak to you soon. That's all for today's MedHeads. My name's Dr. Fergal Armstrong. We'll see you next time.